calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. We ended up being the second most liked and retweeted film. The first one being the Taylor Swift documentary. And I was like, <laughs> if I can be second to Taylor Swift in anything, frankly, if I could be like right. 200th to Taylor Swift in anything, like I'm thrilled. <laughs> I'm diking out, you're diking out. Let's dike out together. See what it's all about. Diking out, diking out. Hi, and welcome to Diking Out, a podcast that doesn't need to fetch the bolt cutters because lesbians always have them at the ready. I'm Carolyn Bergier. And I'm Melody Kamali. And today we are diking out with filmmaker Alice Wu about queer filmmaking. But first, let's talk about all the crazy, exciting things that aren't happening in our lives. <laughs> Live comedy as we knew it. Um, yeah. Leaving the apartment in general. When's the last time you went outside? It has been exactly five weeks That's... since I've walked out the door of my apartment. I don't know how you haven't lost it. I believe that I really missed my calling as an astronaut. I feel <laughs> like... Uh, I'd be great at being an astronaut. I feel like when uh, we really get closer to the apocalypse, if we have to start like applying to be in the bunkers, uh, I would have a strong resume. <laughs> uh, even though I was sick during this time, I have been baking, uh, you know, putting out episodes of of diking out and uh, not losing my mind. I don't know. So I'm surprising, crazy. like surprisingly feel like I'm thriving a little bit in quarantine. <laughs> and so is Cecilia. We're both just like having a nice time in our one bedroom New York City apartment. So crazy. If I don't go for a walk, like my daily walk, I'll start to lose it and get really cagey. So I can't even imagine. You know, I think at this point, I'm just afraid to go outside because I'm like, if... If I go out like a little bit and like get a taste of what I've been missing and of like how much things have changed, then maybe that'll like make me more sad or whatever. But right now I feel like I've been in this like bubble that is my apartment and 
not having to like confront too much of what's going on. So I don't know. I think I'm going to just try to write. Plus I'm supposed to like quarantine for 14 days from when I stop experiencing symptoms and the symptoms don't stop. They don't stop. They don't stop. So Carolyn's still sick. (laughs) Yeah. Literally had to take like Tylenol and have a nap uh, before we're recording this because I started feeling bad again. My shortness of breath has been coming back. All the fun stuff uh, that's going on right now. But, you know, not going to not going to let that stop me from uh, talking about Ellen DeGeneres. Jesus. My favorite person in the world. Christ. <laughs> Melody's like, oh, no. Why are we talking about Ellen again? Uh, because I love her and she's the best and uh, no. I stand her. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Carolyn's official last time talking about Ellen DeGeneres. Um, Carolyn, yes. you have the floor. <laughs> yes. Okay. So th- this is it. We're never going to talk about her again unless, you know, she makes the news. Uh, no. <laughs> You're keeping We're- her in the news. I swear. I am. <laughs> I'm uh I'm putting <laughs> this will now be known as the After Ellen podcast. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't hear from the lawyers after last week's episode. I really <laughs> thought that that somebody was going to contact us and be like, uh, "Take that episode down. You cannot say we caused coronavirus." <laughs> no, an After Ellen writer did respond to Ever Maynard's Instagram story. Um, yeah, just with like a bunch of cry laugh emojis. So I think we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cry laugh emojis. It sounds like she knows we're we're onto them. <laughs> well, anyway, so you know, if if you're a regular listener, you know that we've been talking a little bit about Ellen uh, getting a lot of uh, anger aimed her way, a lot of uh, negative vitriol. Uh, some of it earned. I was arguing some of it unearned, and. I guess this was all coming off wrong because we got uh, an email from an awesome listener, uh, but I do want to read the the email. The subject was, enough Ellen apologizing already. Carolyn, you're driving me and my girlfriend nuts with all of this Ellen stuff. We both really like the podcast and appreciate hearing different points of view from the gay lady community, but it's hard to keep listening to you and your terrible views on Ellen. Uh, It sounds so pathetic to hear you continue to defend her just because she's gay. This is obviously a sore spot for you, and maybe you're aware of it, but it's really cringe the way you justify her bad behavior simply because she's a lesbian comedian. I think it's important to recognize that even gay people can be terrible, and especially if they are white, rich, and cis. Ellen has an insane amount of privilege, and she deserves to be called out for her behavior just as much as anyone else. Calling out Ellen doesn't mean we stop calling out other people who aren't gay women, which is what you seem to believe. Ellen has so much power, and because of that, she has the ability to perpetuate the same sort of oppressive behavior that we often associate with cis straight men who are typically in those positions of power. So when gay women are in power, we're okay with them behaving just like straight men who came before them? Then what is the point of celebrating gay women and other minorities gaining ground if they are just going to uphold the same abusive, chauvinistic culture? I wish you would do some reflection on this before you continue to spout your opinions that are based in nothing but your personal love for Ellen, I guess. Uh, I get that she may be an icon for you, but we have to hold our icons accountable. Thanks for all the great content. 
wishing you nothing but the best. Listener, I agree with you. So so much of this is spot on. You're right. Uh, I did take time to reflect. Uh, you sent this about 10 minutes before we started recording. And so I was I like, 10 no, <laughs> we were just about to record and it was going to be an Ellen free episode. It was. <laughs> Listener, it was you sent be... this minutes before we started recording. <laughs> right in the nick of time. Uh, you know, I totally see your point and I agree with you and actually you know the concept of of time has been I it's like we're on we're all on shrooms for two months while this was going on because I I have no concept of time uh and whenever we record these episodes and because Ellen has been in the news uh a lot which is weird uh right now more stuff has come out since the last time we talked about Ellen and recorded that episode so, like, the, the latest thing is that, you know, her employees uh, were getting their, their pay cut and stuff. Like, that's that's insane. There's no reason why Ellen can't help out her employees and make sure that they all get paid the same as they were making before. She has the money to do that. She's donating. She donated, like, a million dollars to the L.A. Food Bank, which is great. Uh, but also, you know, help out your employees and a lot of them have been working with her for a while. Uh, I was not defending Ellen's crappy behavior. I'm sorry if it came off that way. I, I don't love Ellen. I don't, I've, you know, I do think that she has done important stuff in the, the past, but I'm very much of a eat the rich mentality. I think it's weird how her hobby is just like buying and flipping mansions. And I don't think it's moral to hoard that much money as a human. <laughs> and Melody is just like waiting for me to end. I, <laughs> my opinions are but simple. <laughs> okay, go. If, if this is the last chance I get to talk about Ellen, it, it was more just that, you know, I think we can criticize Ellen when criticism is due, but that one Twitter thread and the ganging up on her for like a bad joke when she's a comedian who tells, like if you picked apart every single joke Ellen made, like nothing would be funny anymore I don't know maybe here I am still making excuses maybe I haven't reflected enough listener but I I, I do think I don't think Ellen is like this awesome person I even uh reached out to a friend of mine who writes for another daytime talk show out in LA and I'm like hey is this Ellen stuff true is she really a monster and she was like apparently so she doesn't treat her staff like people and you know that's when there's smoke there's fire you know right she's right. obviously not the best <laughs> yeah yeah and, and I I believe it there's nothing about Ellen where I'm like no I can't see her you know not wanting to make eye contact with people. Of course it can. Uh, yeah, she's privileged. She's rich. She's white. Uh, you know, her sense of reality is like nothing. You know, I, I know that like Cecilia used to always be like, Oh, you know, one day you'll have Ellen on the podcast. I'm like, I don't I don't know what I would talk to Ellen about. You know, I don't even think she likes. Yeah. What does George W. Bush smell like? Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, by no, I only stand one lesbian uh, daytime talk host, and that's Oprah. Uh, I mean, Rosie O'Donnell. (laughs) I have to pick between those two queer daytime talk show 
icon? Yeah. You can only have one. No, I have always been a, a Rosie O'Donnell fan. I've never watched much of, of the Ellen show or even like her earlier uh, comedy, you know, just like age wise. I just kind of missed that. But I'm not going to also get mad at people who still like her. If you like Ellen, like Ellen. If you don't like Ellen, don't like Ellen. And it's totally valid uh, not to like her. I just think it's psychotic to be like, I'll donate money to charity if you share stories about times when Ellen was a monster to you. I don't know. That's it. They obviously weren't trying to... The MO wasn't to... Get as much money as possible for donations. Right? I mean, what a bad criteria. To, that was just to, you know, get the word out that she's a monster. Yeah. And fine. I mean, I'm locked up and losing my mind, and I love chaos, and I won't lie. I was delighted when I saw it. I know you got <laughs> immediately offended. And then I talked to you, and I was like, that brought me back to earth, and was like, okay, that's kind of shitty under the guise of charity. But yeah, the more I've been thinking about it, 100% because of you over the last <laughs> few weeks, I have, I um, so I'm back sorry. to, I don't, I don't care. She's just another shitty millionaire. She yeah. was huge and uh, like an icon to me. Oh, I, yeah? You can separate her, yeah, her stand-up. I loved Ellen. I loved her stand-up comedy so much when I was a kid, but I don't have to like her now. I, ever, ever since the... Photos of her at the Cowboys game with George W. Especially, sure. I can't look at, into her dead eyes the same anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, and then the defense of that was like total bullshit. The Kevin Hart stuff. I mean, we all know this. We all know uh, that that she's yeah. problematic, and I don't fault people for for not liking her. I just also think that uh, we don't need to like lose our minds with everything she does i think we've already established like she's just like a rich out of touch not not great person and i don't know why it's like news every time but okay yeah i can see i can see how i'm trying to have it both ways and <gasps> oh my god whatever she's not going to give you a car like get I... over it <laughs> Melody, you figured it out. My angle. I've been hoping that one day I'm going to reach under my couch cushion and Ellen's going to have planted some car keys under there <laughs> in these trying times. Okay, question. Knowing that Ellen is like a terrible person to work for, would you accept a job writing for The Ellen Show? I want a TV writing job. See? Here we go. <laughs> Maybe. I've worked for Monsters. Of all genders, orientations. Uh, a million percent, I would take that job. So I'm just putting this into the universe. So because if I were on this podcast, like trashing Ellen and being like rageful every time, and then one day I get a job writing for the Ellen show and people be like, what the fuck? How could you, <laughs> you know, and be like, no, no, no. I said, I can deal with it. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, uh, what's been what's been going on with your girlfriend and past guest, Allie Clayton? I know that she's been working through this pandemic as a nanny. Yes. Turns out she's essential. Yes. Um, Allie's been nannying for a 10-month-old baby. She originally was just babysitting, like going into Midtown Manhattan where they live and just spending days there babysitting. But this woman has asthma and had to move out closer to her parents on Long Island and is renting out her place and just felt like she needed to get out of Manhattan. So first Allie went there for a week. Originally it was supposed to be two weeks at the beginning of April. 
I wish podcasting was a visual medium so I can show you this calendar we have on our refrigerator this like dry erase calendar and for april there's nothing on it obviously and it just says Allie leaves on the day she left <laughs> and then two weeks later it says Allie back question mark and then the day after that goes Allie question mark <laughs> sad face uh, that's the only thing on our calendar we'll put it on um, instagram <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll post yeah i'll send that pic um basically um thankfully it was cut down to one week i was just in isolation by myself for one week while Allie was on long island taking care of this baby and i've been getting weirdly jealous um this is a single mom um little older than us but she had this baby via ivf um such a cutie and Allie's just great with kids and the baby loves her. They look like a family. Allie looks like she's leaving me for days at a time because now after this one week she spent, she came back, but she's going back every weekend. She's spending each weekend. So she's there right now on Long Island just playing house with yes. <laughs> comedian and their baby they look like a cute lesbian couple and I'm getting really jealous <laughs> <laughs> yeah so when you told me about this because this the person that she nannies for is I mean as far as I know straight and I'm, oh, I'm yeah. like she's gonna come out of this quarantine wanting a wife like Allie is a platonic wife for her right now just like doing overnights and and taking this shift is like this other caretaker and it's just like an interesting uh, dynamic. But I wonder what's going on in the mom's mind. Like, I wonder if that's crossed her brain of like, huh, this would be easier if I was like actually had a wife or was like in a relationship with a woman. Yeah, not even a husband. Like she needs a wife. Yeah. Because it seems like she was really frazzled when this all started. And now she's found this new rhythm that 100% involves my girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they take shifts throughout the night, taking care of the baby. Like they know the baby's like little language as it's learning to like babble. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a cute little family and Allie's getting baby fever. I can tell from spending all this time yeah. with the baby. And I know you know all about that. <laughs> yeah. I know about baby fever. Uh, yeah. We have to go through another, uh, round of IVF because our first one, uh, between the two of us, we ended up with only one normal embryo and we want two kids. So we're going to go through again, but are waiting till it's safe to do so. Actually, the pandemic and being home all the time, it makes me even more like baby feverish because it's like, oh man, right now would be great to have a baby here and just be like <laughs> home all the time and not have to worry about like, oh, I have a show or like, oh, I can't do this gig or go on this trip because I have a baby. It's like, well, I can't do any of the things I like to do. So might as well be a mom, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's easy enough. Yeah. Just nest. Yeah. Oh, can I say that, um, last episode, I briefly mentioned the lesbians in my high school. Yeah. Um, and one in particular that used to make out with her girlfriend all the time. And, oh, oh. um, the day the episode dropped, I, she added me on social. <laughs> yeah. And it's just this lesbian community, man. So tight knit and word travels fast. I mean, maybe it's a coincidence actually, if she could reach out to me, cause I still don't know if it's a coincidence that she happened to find me. Um, <laughs> or if she heard that I talked about her making out with her girlfriend. Oh, I'm going to say not a coincidence. And she heard heard about it for <laughs> yeah. sure 
<laughs> so funny. For sure. What else? I want to know if anyone's watching 90 Day Fiance and following this lesbian storyline. Not me. Please. <laughs> get in my DMs and tell me if you think that Steph is actually gay. Do you know anything about this? I know from what you told me, but I'm confused. Uh, how long? I was assuming that it was like one couple per episode or it's like an ongoing okay. thing. It's like a cast, and over the first couple episodes, you're introduced to a few, maybe like five couples that they'll follow throughout the series, okay. the season. Okay. Each season has a new cast. Got it. This particular lesbian couple is between a YouTuber who has been YouTubing for like 10 years, definitely like a personality, has a big following, and a girl she met online who lives in Australia, like deep in the outback um, so you follow her, this girl, Steph in the States, who has never been in a relationship with a girl who has just absolutely fallen for this girl, Erica, who's like a Kelly Osborne type, like has very colorful Ooh. hair. She actually very much looks like Kelly Osborne. I, d- I dig a, a Kelly Osborne. Oh, right? I d- yeah, oh yeah. Allie digs her because she has very big boobs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually they both do. I, I just Googled it and like, what a cute pairing. Yeah. They're super cute. They're a very attractive couple, yeah. but As you get to know them, you see they're not intimate. Steph is really resistant to any kind of physical intimacy. Erica's getting a little more... Uh, more and more frustrated as the episodes go on. And now people are online are saying that Steph is not even gay and that she's probably just come onto the show to boost her following or she wants to be wow. an actress or something. I think you should watch it. There's so much to be watching right now. I just saw the trailer for A Secret Love, which is a documentary that's coming to Netflix about... Squeal! Yeah. Uh, did you cry during the trailer? Um, Allie did. Yeah. Um, I cried reading, actually, the Time Magazine little feature on Same. it. I think it, the trailer premiered on Time, right? Yeah. So I... It debuted on I Time. also so had got it, like, more... Corresponding. Yeah. I, I got more emotional reading the piece than watching the trailer, but the trailer looks great. I can't wait to see it. It's about a real life uh, lesbian couple who were together for 60 or 65 years and they didn't come out until they were like 93 years old and like going, going into a nursing home and everybody just thought they were like best friends and roommates for that long. Some people thought they were cousins. Yeah. Yeah. And they had a lot of different myths. And one of them played in that uh, women's baseball league that was made into the movie, you know, a league of their own. And it just looks like a really touching story and that they really dive into like what the consequences of being uh, out and gay were at the time and why they would go through their life keeping that secret and what it was like for them to come out uh, so much later in life. And it looks like a really sweet story and I'm looking forward to it. But you know, a lot of queer content coming to Netflix, including a movie by our guest today, which we both seen and we're excited for the rest of you to see it because it comes out later this week on May 1st. So what do you say? Should we get to the interview? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, now it's time to introduce our guest for this episode. We're so excited to get to speak with her today. She is the writer and director of 2004's Saving Face, which is a movie about a queer Chinese-American woman navigating complicated relationships with both her pregnant mother and her new girlfriend. 
And she also wrote and directed the upcoming coming-of-age film, The Half of It, which is going to premiere on Netflix May 1st. Alice Wu, thank you so much for diking out with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, really quite a moment for me that I'm a podcast guest. Because the first time around of my first film, Podcasts Were Not a Thing, um, yeah. And now all my improv students and all my friends who are much younger than I am. It's like all they do is listen to podcasts. And uh, so it's just funny to uh, uh, now, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm both thrilled and honored to be here. So thank you. Thank you. I, I'm glad that podcasts exist, especially for everyone who has uh, their creative projects premiering and coming out right now. And this is the only way to get the get the word out um, since, you know, the, the traditional press tours are kind of on pause right now. But I know that our listeners are going to be so excited because we've already had a bunch of people sending us messages saying, have you seen the trailer for this new Netflix show? We're so excited. <laughs> it's like, get this. We saw the movie. We have a screener. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- thank you. Yeah, that's a, uh, it's funny that the trailer, you know, it came out just a few days ago and wow, that thing kind of blew up a little bit and it, it caught, I think, all of us a little off guard. Uh, Cause I mean, I fully believe those actors are all going to become stars, but at the point I cast them, the point we're shooting it, they're still not names yet. And I'm not a well-known quantity. I have like a small cult following, right? It was, I mean, we had a little bit of a hint about it because back in January when Netflix, uh, Netflix actually sent me a message saying, hey, tomorrow we're going to announce the movie on this Twitter thread. We're going to announce the 28 original movies that we're going to roll out this year and yours is going to be one of them. And I was like, okay. And then the next day, um, I think we were all astonished that uh, we ended up being the second most liked and retweeted film. The first one being the Taylor Swift documentary. And I was like... (laughs) If I can be second to Taylor Swift in anything, frankly, if I could be like 200th to Taylor Swift in anything, like I'm thrilled. (laughs) I know there's a very small, very dedicated fan base for Saving Face, but I don't think I'd realized how not as small as it was. Like I still, I still think it's like a cult film, but it turns out more people have maybe seen it than I had realized. And uh, maybe a disproportionate number of those people are on social media. And uh, they've just been hyping up the film. And when the trailer dropped, it just exploded in this way that I certainly didn't expect. And I I, I think like down to like totally, like I knew like anyone who's queer, anyone who's Asian might reach out to me. Right. Right. But like down to like a friend's real estate agent emailed me to be like, hey, saw your trailer. And this is like some random white guy, straight, lives in the suburbs. And I'm like, wow. All right. <laughs> so that that was sort of an interesting thing. Have you noticed if uh, Saving Face has gotten a bump in the meantime? Because I, I did see a couple people post on Facebook that they were excited that they just watched this trailer and then through that discovered like Googled you and then discovered you had another movie and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go watch this one now to hold me over until the half of it comes out. Yeah, that was a an unexpected consequence because 
For one thing, it, 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 it was funny. One of my actors was literally saying, it feels like Saving Face is just coming out again because, yeah. I mean, I recently saw that film like last year on a uh, this this really great theater in New York, Nighthawk. I don't know if you've been to the Nighthawk yes. cinemas. Yeah. 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 So Karen Coleman, who uh, is a programmer there, wanted to program a 35 millimeter version. And so I went to go see it. And both my producer and I were like, wow, this film weirdly holds up. You know, like there's literally like there's a payphone in it at one point. But aside from the payphone and aside from like the cell phone ring, everything else pretty much could. It could be today, right? Yeah. But actually, here's a funny story. So my high school newspaper, uh, for a couple of years, uh, they've been reaching out to me to do an interview. And for whatever reasons, every time they reached out, I was like, oh, I'm on location to shoot. But I find this like, look, I promise you I'll give you an interview. Uh, maybe we can do it as once I'm done. And maybe you can time it to when the new movie comes out. So I end up having this really, like just this very smart young woman is interviewing me. And she's like maybe 16, 17. And the night before we did the interview, she went out to go watch Saving Face, right? And so we're doing there. She's like, you know, I just saw Saving Face last night. And she was like, she's Chinese American. And she was like, you know what? I'm working on, like, I'm just trying to come out to myself. And like, this movie just sings my song. And she's like, I just feel like what a difference it would have made in my life if I had seen it when it came out. And I was like, you were one when this movie came out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and it was this moment where I think she was like, oh, it came out that long ago. (laughs) But it was sort of like a fascinating thing. So yeah, it's having its own kind of renaissance. So let's back up a little bit and talk about your journey to becoming a filmmaker in the first place, because it's not typical. For many reasons, right? Because normally we don't see Asian Americans as directors and writers. Uh, We don't see that many queer women in that position. And then this was a a career transition for you. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I was technically born in this country, but I didn't speak English till I was five. Same here. Yeah? Where, where, what, what language did you speak? Farsi. Farsi. Uh, Farsi was my first language. My parents are from Iran, but until I started going to school, did I start really speaking English. Exactly, but you were born here. Uh, right. Yes. Isn't that fascinating? Like, that's the thing I try yeah. and tell people where it's like, there's so much more to being American than people realize, you know? In right. fact, it's actually something I deal with in uh, the half of it where... I mean, the main character actually was born in China and is an immigrant, but her love interest is Latinx. But I, my whole thing is that, like, she's not an immigrant and her parents are not immigrants. They were born in America, but it's actually quite common in the Latin U.S.-born Latinx community to speak Spanish at home. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. you necessarily came from another country. And for me, that's yeah, an right. important distinction because I think the notion of being American is is much broader than people realize. You know, like, having grown up only like speaking Mandarin at first until I went to school. I ended up reading a lot. Like once, I think I was a somewhat a lonely kid because we moved every couple of years. And so I'd always have one or two friends. And I, I read so much, but it would never have occurred to me that that would be something I could someday do. But I did work in bookstores like as soon as I could, like all through grad school, even when I was a computer scientist designing software, I worked in a bookstore on the weekends purely for the 35 percent book discount. <laughs> this is so long ago. It's pre-Amazon. Yeah. So books are expensive. Yeah. You know, I, I was a big reader and somewhere in the back of my head, I thought, well, maybe someday, like when I'm retired, maybe I'll write a novel. 
But I don't think I really thought it would be something anyone would read besides me. It wasn't until I, I you know, I, I was in, I was in, I, I studied computer science. I mean, I briefly thought about like, what would it be like to have majored in English? And it's really because I had a high school teacher who really affected my life. And she, in fact, uh, in the half of it, uh, it's the only name in the half of it that's real. The the English teacher there, Mrs. Gazelle Shop, Mrs. G, yeah. is actually the name of my high school English teacher. Oh, I, I love that. that character. She's since passed away. But Mrs. G, she's very, like, she made me watch Harold and Maude. We would have, like, she would tell me, like, certain books to read. But I always remembered that, uh, like, I'd come visit her every year when I went off to college. And one year she was like, what did you major in? And I was like, well, I'm going to major in computer science. And she was like, well, that's a shame. And I was like, <laughs> what, why is that a shame? And she was like, I always, I always hoped you were going to major in English. And that, like, blew my mind, like, as a, as a you know, a Chinese-American kid who, who like – this is before Amy Tan, like it was just before Amy Tan had released Joy Luck Club even. Yeah. So in my head, I'm like, how, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I, I remember having a convo with my mom about it and she said, listen, if you major in something like the sciences or like if in math and you prove a theorem, no one can say you're wrong. But if you write a book, they could just not read it. That parent logic just killing our dreams left and right. My dad did similar stuff because, I mean, I wanted to be a screenwriter and a film director. And he was like, well, why don't you? And my dad was an immigrant, so he's uh, from France. And he was like, why don't you go into advertising? And that's making like small movies, but then you'll actually have a job and a salary and you'll be making things that um, there's a demand for. And I was like, well, I guess I can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, but I understand it, though. I mean, honestly, I'm actually super practical. Yeah. And my mom, I don't think my mom was trying to kill my dream. To be honest, I think my parents, they truly were not, they were not typical Asian parents in the sense that, like, they didn't even know what I majored in until, like, I graduated. They were, like, very, <laughs> like, my what all my mom wanted. She wanted, like, a very, like, gracious daughter who, like, had a lot of friends and, like, would eventually marry, like, a doctor who could, like, set her up in a life of luxury. Like, that would be my mom's <laughs> greatest dream, right? And I get it because my parents had worked so hard. Yeah. Like, that would have been great for her. Like, I totally understand. She wanted my life to be easy. Right. I mean, what she ended up with is, like, a gay nerd. So, like, <laughs> you know, like it's a, but I, I think that she wanted, I mean, this is a side, but this is actually totally true. I remember like a friend of mine in college still reminds me of this where I apparently once said, and it's totally true. I was like, you know, if you asked my mom, you have a choice. Your daughter could get like a full ride to Harvard or moisturize more. Like which one would it be? And I honestly think that for my mom, that was actually be a challenging question because I think my mom is like so on me about moisturizing. That. <laughs> anyway, that the, the point that's that when she said the thing is even if she had been like a I'm super practical. Like I've been financially self-sustaining since I was 18. What's your sign? I, I'm a Taurus. <laughs> Taurus. Okay. We're we're both Which Capricorns, but we're also very practical as well. <laughs> practical and earthy. 
Yes. Okay. I work so well with Capricorns. Like three of my best friends all were born on December 24th. And then like literally anytime someone's a Capricorn, we get on like gangbusters. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) I don't know what it is, but it's like, it's a very like, I'm so happy that you are. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, the upshot of it is, is that I think, you know, recent immigrant parents, and it sounds like both of you understand this, I don't, I don't know that being practical is such a bad thing. Like I, only because I have a number of friends who went to film school and who had to stress out about the amount of debt that they had. Um, and even, yeah. And there's that, like, and I get it. Like, I think if I was in that position, maybe because I've like helped them edit their films or like, I acutely feel that stress because I see how stressed I am when I'm just trying to write something and I, I financially am like, luckily I don't cost a lot, so I can usually live off my savings. But if that weren't the case, uh, I think I would then be scrambling after the fact. So it was going to come before or after. In my case, it just came before where I I think I wasn't aware that that's what was happening, but I was spending those years designing software. And then I sort of had gotten myself into a position where there was an internet boom and all of a sudden no one knew how to monetize the internet. And instead of working a hundred hours a week, we were all just you know, sitting around in these bullshit meetings about like, you know, what is our mission statement? And it would be like ridiculous, like discussions about like, should we put in mythic? Is that a word we should put into the statement? You know, like really, really dumb, dumb meetings. And, yeah. Um, I, I just end up taking a writing class at night. Uh, and because I was just so bored. At work. Yeah. And I end up writing Saving Face in that, that, that writing class. Uh, and then long story short, I ended up quitting my job, uh, moving to, uh, Brooklyn and I would like, all right, I'll live on $40,000 a year for five years. And at the end of that, I will still have just enough left to like look for a job for six months. And so that was the master plan. And that's the only reason I didn't go to film school is that, uh, I didn't have enough in my nest egg for film school. So I was like, I'm going to have to cobble it together. I worked on a lot of NYU and Columbia student, like grad shorts for free. I trained as an editor, uh, which was really helpful. And then I just worked with actors, like uh, on acting workshops. So it was like my weird kind of patched together film school. Yeah. So that that's basically what happened. And you had, I would say, great success. I know you said it's like kind of a cult or a, a niche following with that film, but it's you know, you, you watch it and you wouldn't know that that was one, somebody's like first movie or somebody who hasn't been to film school and like somebody who's kind of like self taught and made it in this kind of scrappy way that you're, you're describing. Oh, thank you. Also, I had brought on these producers, uh, forensic films, uh, Robin O'Hara and Scott McCauley, and they were like, they're very into scrappy filmmaking. (laughs) And I think it's also a credit to them to make that small budget look as big as we could. Um, and then also hilariously, because they had read the script, um, the, the president of Will Smith's production company was basically on a, uh, was one of the judges of a screenplay award contest, which is how he had gotten hooked in with the screenplay. And then they came on board. Like once we found financing, they came, he actually slipped it to someone who gave us the financing. And so that's how Will Smith weirdly is one of my producers. But, uh, you know, like he was also really supportive. So I, I give them a lot of credit for that. That's awesome. I would have never thought that 
Will Smith would have been key in making a Gaijin film in the early aughts. And yet it kind of makes a weird sense, right? It does. Like if you think about it, if you're going to pick a gigantic celebrity, like, yeah, you know, I mean, I might pick Jada Pinkett first, actually, over Will Smith. It's like, that would make sense with like, set it up or set it off. But, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> if it's going to be a guy, I, I could see like Will Smith is not a bad, bad uh, guess. And then... Between the the two movies, there have been 15 years. What's been happening in the meantime? Like, have you been pitching other things? Or, like, at what point did the half of it become a project? Okay, so I wrote Saving Face as, like, a love letter to my mother. And, you know, on some level, anyone who's deciding they're going to try and make a movie somewhere, they obviously have some hope it'll get made. That all said, I knew the odds were incredibly stacked against me. I mean, who thought that movie would have gotten made 15 years ago? Like, yeah. Like, I think everyone, including me, was incredibly surprised. Like, it, like my five-year deadline hit in the second week of my shoot. It was, like, just under the wire, right? And it would be a challenge to get that made today still, even... <laughs> It would, but right. not as hard. Not, like, no, that's not, the funny thing. Not as hard, but, like, still. Like, I actually think that movie kind of today might actually just get made like that. Like, I think yeah. we're in a slightly different world. Like, all of a sudden, starting about a year or so, year and a half, it's like Hollywood suddenly discovered diversity. Right. <laughs> and there's so many more outlets, like, right, for, for things to get seen. Yeah, it's been really democratized. Yeah, but yeah. We were saying, we're like, did her first film coincide with the release of The L Word? Like, it's, you know, we didn't have those big... Yeah, The L Word came out about a year later, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, but it was. It was like that uh, uh, when that happened, I think... Yeah, it was, it was a shock to everyone and also me. So once the film got made... Everyone was, and then it, it did like, it just did really well at Toronto and at Sundance and Sony Classics bought it and released it. And it just did far better than I could ever have hoped. Um, and at which point people were like, okay, what's next? And I had not thought that far. Like I yeah. was, I had not even, you know, I barely was like processing the fact that this was happening. And so I was a little bit kind of responding to what the market would bear. Like basically... Um, I was getting sent different scripts and most of them were totally not appropriate for me at all. Um, every now and then something really interesting would happen. Someone send me a book to adapt. And again, and mostly, and this, this is still true, like my agents, they're great, but I think my, I must be so difficult because I say no to everything. Like I just <laughs> don't, you know, but every now and then something interesting, be like, oh, I, I do kind of like this. Um, and so I was basically writing for hire, um, which was fun but not really the same thing as um, something that comes entirely from you. And it's just something that you feel so deeply passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for a few years. I'd actually just sold a, uh, uh, I just started to think about TV and I sold a TV pitch that actually all four networks wanted to buy. And we went with ABC. It was based on my experiences as a woman in tech. And that's when uh, two things happened. One is the writer's strike. And the second oh, is man. my mom had a major, yeah. And my mom had a major health issue, Ugh. and I ended up dropping everything and moving to San Francisco, uh, which is where I live now. I'm an only child, so it, it was it was like not a hard choice. Sure. It was like very clear that like so I came up here thinking I'd just be here for like a few weeks or maybe a few months, and then have you ever had to take care of a, a aging parent or a? Luckily, not yet, but 
I have watched my parents do it with my grandparents. Yeah, yeah. I've never had it where it's been on me, but I've been very close when my um, when my grandmother had Alzheimer's and was close to that. So that it kind yeah. of is all consuming. Yeah. It also ends up not just being about their health. You know, like there's this all sorts of things where you find out all these things about their life that like I hadn't lived with my mom since I was 16. Yeah. So there were all sorts of things I was finding out. And it was just this time where, like you said, it was all consuming for just so many reasons. I don't know that I recommend that everybody drop everything and go home and take care of a parent. Like, I think it's all very individual. But in my case, I'm lucky. My my mom was wonderful. Like, she's a total handful, but she's, like, really funny. And she's, like, I don't know, like, I'm definitely her straight man. Like, she's totally, like, she, like, walks into the room, the room lights up, you know? So it was not hard for me to want to be there yeah. for that. So when you asked me what I was doing, a lot of it emotionally was that. I mean, physically, it was the most, I was doing the most boring stuff you could imagine. Like, I was literally, like, reading investment books and figuring out how to, like, I've been lucky enough to have two careers where I'd saved enough money. Yeah. And I was like, how can I set this up so I can just live off my savings and off the, like, you know, passive income? <laughs> it was so far, like, I bought a rental property. Like, I did, like, every boring thing you could possibly <laughs> imagine. But this is because I'm very practical. Yeah. And because I never wanted to end up relying on someone. Um, I think I saw the effects of that through all the women in my family. Mm. And it's something that I just never... I mean, it's funny. Sometimes people come up to me and ask me for advice and filmmaker, like that they're starting out and they're thinking about leaving their job. And I'm always very open about the fact that like, I don't think there's one way, but if you ask me, know that I'm coming from a very practical basis. So I would probably say, figure out your tolerance for fiscal, you know, discomfort, right? And then make sure you've made enough money to overcome that, whatever that is. And if you're lucky enough that you're in a situation where someone like your parent or like a partner can help. I think that's great. Like, I don't think there's any shame in that at all. But a lot of people can't have. So then figure out how to, you know, figure out how to sort of be your own patron. Yeah. You know, basically, when I went up to take care of my mom, basically after about the eighth month, my agent called me and was like, what is going on? And I finally was like, yeah, I'm not coming back. Yeah. And in my head, I really thought I've left the industry. Um, So yeah, I didn't write at all. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. That's so refreshing, though, to hear that you had this path. You never really hear that from anyone. It's always just say yes to everything and, you know, take any job that'll like help you just barely pay your rent and throw yourself into your art. But uh, especially coming from immigrant parents, I've never thought that path was an option, especially with comedy or any creative pursuits I've had. I feel like I've been the most reluctant comedian or just very slow moving because I need to always be working to make sure that I have the security. And I don't know, it's been hard to just say yes to everything. So that was very inspiring to hear too, that it still ends up working out in your own way. I'm so glad you said that. And here's the thing. I'm sure I'm significantly older than you. So you can take some (laughs) solace in that, right? Like my first film didn't come out till I was like 34, right? And like this film's coming out and I'm 49 years old. I turn 50 next week. What? Yeah. And so the thing is, and and I say that because... I think people, like, yes, there's certain things. Like, I'm not going to become an Olympic swimmer or something. Like, there's some things that, like, right. boundary. Or, like, I mean, there's, like, a moment <laughs> in time if you want to go for that, and sure. that moment has passed, right? <laughs> like, you know, I'm not going to be able to go to the prom with so-and-so anymore. That, that moment is gone. But there's, like, in the arts, I think we get better as we get older. Like, just the sheer Definitely. amount of empathy we can develop and experience, Right. And especially if you're someone who, like in our case, maybe it's because we're immigrants. And for someone else, it might be some other reason that makes them feel like they want to stay in the cocoon a little bit longer before they burst out with something. Mm -hmm. I'm all for that. Like, I'm a super late bloomer. And I'm someone who, like, I don't talk about the stuff I'm working on until I'm really ready to show it. And if that Mm -hmm. takes years, that takes years. Yeah. Uh, But I don't know that that's bad. You know, I'm just different. Someone shouldn't feel like, oh, no, if I'm not like, if I don't have this like every single week, some brand new exciting thing to talk about, I'm therefore not, you know, productive. I think that's a great way to squander your energies. Right. I think it's far better to get very clear of yourself what matters and then focus on that. Yeah. And like live a life worth commenting on, which clearly you did. And it just comes through in your work like the dad character. I don't know how much of that is based on your relationship with your mom or there's so much truth in that. There are like certain lines from the dad that just like stabbed me in the heart. (laughs) And um, I don't know, the the story seemed very rich is all I'm trying to say. Thank you. Yeah, I I will say one thing. I mean, I always try and be a little private about like stuff, but I do write from a, like what actually happens is I always fictionalize what's happening, but emotionally everything is very true. And yes, Mm -hmm. the relationships are very real to me, like between the daughter and the dad. Um, There's 
a huge amount of uh, things that can be drawn from my actual relationship with my dad. But one thing I'll tell you is that my dad totally, like, you know, when he works, he goes out there, he wears a suit, or he did before he retired. But then when he comes home, he literally has like two sweatshirts he wears, one that has a Tweety Bird on it, and one that's the Tasmanian Devil. And he only, for the last... 20 years has worn one or the other of those. Some, he's very clean. Like there's some, like he's a very neat person. Somehow these sweatshirts, they're not pilled. They're like, they look like they're in perfect condition. And then, and then he has like a, a, a bathrobe, like a literally. And I remember telling my costume designer, Hey, I, I kind of want the dad to just cause it's so funny. Cause my dad also, he's very sweet, but he doesn't smile a lot. Mm. He looks terrifying. And so there's something super funny to me about this, like, Chinese man who looks so stern, but he's wearing this, like, happy Tweety Bird. <laughs> and so she had to go get the rights to that. And, like, luckily we got, got the, like, so that's, yeah, he's, like, that's half so the movies in that, like, Tweety Bird shirt. Is that, like, an immigrant dad thing? Because my father was also very into clothing with Looney Tunes on it. Like, he had this Bugs Bunny shirt that said, like, bad to the bone, and it made no sense, but he wore it, like, all the time. <laughs> My dad had a Tweety Bird shirt, too. <gasps> I don't know if that's an immigrant thing. I think we're on to something. But... <laughs> yeah. I, maybe. Maybe because it feels so American? Yeah, I was going to say, maybe it's, like, you know? the way they feel they can relate yeah. <laughs> to American cultures through Looney Tunes. So, when when you set out to make... Both of your movies, obviously, like there isn't a lot of Asian American cinema and there's more now. But before before your film, it was like Joy Luck Club. And that's basically it. Like, what's that like making a film when there's no guidelines or template for for that? Yeah, I didn't have any sort of formula anyway, because I was basically and you know, like literally decided to move to Brooklyn six weeks later, moved there yeah. um, without, and just was sort of going to bumble my, like, you know, I was hyper-focused on getting this film made, but had no sort of roadmap. But the one thing is actually almost no one does have a roadmap to like how a film gets made. Like there's just no one path. So there's, there's that. But the second thing is the great thing about knowing jack shit is that, um, like, I'm a very stubborn filmmaker. Like, if you talk to my producers, they'll laugh about the fact that I'm extremely specific about what I want, and I just don't compromise if I think it will hurt the story. And I want to be clear, that doesn't mean, like, I come up with everything. Like, my creative team comes up with so much. What I mean by that is if someone says, yeah, but, you know, maybe we should make this character, you know, what whatever this other thing is, and if I thought that would strengthen the story, I would do it. But most often, if I just thought it's like, oh, because, you know, then we can cast this star, I'm like, nope, that's not the movie I'm making. Because I truly believe, I think the reason why Saving Face has that much resonance is actually because it's set in such a specific Chinese immigrant community, mm-hmm. which weirdly allowed it to feel relatable to even people who are not immigrants, right? Because these people felt real. Along mm-hmm. the way with that script, I definitely got a lot of people being like, this is a great story. We just got to make it white. And they'd be like, look, the way you've written it, we could easily just make it white. Like, Mm-mm. this is the way people talk. And I was like, you're right. It could be white because this is the way people talk because I don't write characters like, oh, they're Chinese. Now they will speak in a Chinese way. Yeah, Like, people are just people, right? But 
I was like, look, I, I'm sure someone could make that film and that and good for them. Maybe it'll be a great film. But for me, I think the thing I do is I take these, I do have commercial instincts. I will take these commercial hooks and then I end up showing characters you don't usually get to see because why not? Like, if I'm not going to do it. Who's going to do it? Right. So I, I think a two year point of like, oh, but no one else has done it. So did that, was that hard? In some ways, probably. It, it, what made it hard is it made it very hard for anyone to see my vision before it actually appeared on screen because they weren't really sure. Where it makes it easier for me, I don't have any sort of... Uh, Preconceived uh, notion? Yeah. I'm like, this is what I'm doing and I'm, I'm going for it. Um, I mean, in hindsight, like I knew I was stubborn, but in hindsight, I realized like, oh my God, that is a little bit crazy. <laughs> I was that like, you know, I don't, I don't think I even realized how ridiculous that was, but it also gave me the confidence. Um, like I would say with the second film, similarly, like, I'm like, look, if you saw Saving Face, you know what you're getting with me. Yeah. So you know that I'm going to be specific about these things. And I will say that seeing that people relate like, you know, I, I, I have a theory that the more specific you make it, as long as it's based in truth, yes, people will relate. Yeah. And when yeah. that happens, it, here's the reality. We're all lonely, right? Like, I think especially if you choose to be an artist, but I think most people are very familiar with how it feels to be lonely. So anytime you try and write something very personal and then all sorts of people relate to it, it makes you feel a little less lonely. Yeah. So... That's I, I I feel like the experience of both these films has given me even more confidence that I can really, you know, go ahead and be the stubborn filmmaker I am, I guess. And maybe it'll take me another 15 years, but then that's what it is. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right with people connecting to the story just because it's real. But I do think it would have been such a different movie and wouldn't have made as much sense if you had just like cast white people in it because of things, the the family dynamics and the cultural themes with Saving Face, especially, I mean, the whole concept of face and it is specific to Asian American families or, or that experience of being a daughter and, and having like to go out to, to flushing. Like I have friends who, who live these experiences and it's very different than my experiences, but I also can watch it and relate to it in the fact that like, yeah, this is like the real stuff you have to deal with. Like in terms of family of things aren't always comfortable or people are very like judgy and nosy. And it's like, what do you reveal? What don't you reveal? So there are a lot of similarities, but also differences. And those differences are important. And until you have more movies like Saving Face or The Farewell, for example, you know, so many people haven't seen their families on screen like that until those movies and that's so important to have those specific details. And you don't have to be like Chinese American to appreciate it, too, which is what's great about it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I really appreciate that you see that. You know, what's been interesting, I would say, between the 15 years is that I felt that 15 years ago, but I think for some people, it was a little revelatory that like, wow, that, you know, because like, people would see that film and I would get like, you know, I'd get like 
a European-American 50-year-old white guy coming up to me and being like, this is just like my family. And I would get like a 17-year-old Jewish kid saying that. And I would get like a 15-year-old Latinx boy telling me that. And I got like, you know, and that, so I knew that, but I don't know that the industry knew that. Yeah. I feel like 15 years later, some of the industry is starting to get that. Like, oh, hang on. Like- Maybe there is a thirst, not just within these communities for their exact stories, but a thirst in just larger humanity for stories that they feel like have texture, yeah, right? And, and people's like culture, of, and however you want to define culture, you know, it doesn't just have to be ethnic. It doesn't just have to be gender. It doesn't have to be sexuality. Like, I think it ends up enlarging us as, as humans when we're watching that Let's talk about the half of it specifically now, because when I watched it, I was just like thinking of that girl in real life, never imagining that she would be the protagonist in a movie like that. That's exactly right. (laughs) And how refreshing and needed that is, but also how natural it feels to have Ellie be the protagonist in the movie. It's like, yeah, this should have been, because we all went to to school with somebody like that. There's so many coming of age films where that character is always either like a sidekick or not even a sidekick, like in the total background, like maybe she raises her hand once in class and then we move on, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I love that you said that because I feel like so often, well, two thoughts come to mind. One is that that is intentional that with that character, you know, like at the start of the film, she's not living her life. She's living to support her dad. She's writing other people's papers. Those people are eventually going to have their lives. She's just an invisible quantity in this school, right? And she doesn't want attention because pretty much any attention she gets is going to be bad, Mm -hmm. right? And so given that, by this sort of Sereno device of her then trying to write love letters for this jock, she ends up getting to woo the girl that she secretly had a crush on, right? Whether she's admitted it to herself or not. And I think there's something so delicious about that where in a way, even when that happens, she's still not really like, in terms of the way you could see it in her life, she's hiding behind, like it's almost like ventriloquism, this other guy. So she's still not being the exact lead. Like she is actually the main character of the film. And it's watching her journey from someone who believes that she doesn't really have any sort of, uh, like she's not a main character, to at the end of the film, her realizing like, oh, this is her life and her story and that she's gotten there, right? Yeah. I think a lot about first shot, last shot with with important characters. And it's deliberate that the first time you see Ellie, you just sort of see a piece of her. And then like the first time you see her in full, her back is to us, right? And it says the half of it. And what we see is her back half. But the last shot of the film, like I always knew I wanted to be full on just her. And like it's her at a certain point coming to and looking directly ahead. And there's just this moment where we realize, like, we don't know for sure what's going to happen to her. She doesn't know for sure what's going to happen to her. But somehow we could, we know she's going to be all right. But more mm-hmm. importantly, she knows she's going to be all right. Mm-hmm. And I think you see, like, that's a visual 
But that also puts her front and center. Like, this is who the movie's about. And she's, for the first time, not scared. Like, in the movie, you never see her look at someone the way she does in the very last shot. It's like the gaze, where the eye line is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's very explicit about the eye line where, oh, it's like she's just looking directly ahead at the future. And, you know, that is the look of someone who's now the main character in their film. And so that's the first thought. The second thought I had, uh, based on what, what you asked, is truthfully, I just don't know anyone who did not feel profoundly lonely in high school. Um, there probably <laughs> are one or two people. Um, I probably would hate those people if I yeah. met them in real life. <laughs> I just genuinely don't know anyone on any real level that was not profoundly lonely. And I mm-hmm. think for the most part, as much as we're all sort of narcissistic then and self-involved, I don't think any of us think we're the main character, you know, in the movie that is high school. Yeah. Right? Like I think... Whether you're that like nerdy Chinese immigrant girl or whether you're just some white guy jock or whether you're like, you know, like I I think even the prom queen, I bet, has moments where she feels like she is not. Because of that, I I feel like this movie might appeal to that feel like like I just don't care who you are, I bet you understand that feeling. Yeah. And and I, I think that's sort of where I I am. Um, hope this film draws people in. Yeah, I love, I just, I read the director's notes prior to this and it was originally intended to be a story about people in their 20s and you had then chose to set it in high school, which I love for the reasons you laid out because everything is so heightened and there's drama there. So I think it works perfectly in that world. No, thank you. The other thing about high school that I think makes it an interesting place to set something is I feel like, I feel like, especially in this country, uh, everything conspires to have you only interact with a certain, like as you get older, like it seems like the types of friends you can have just narrow more and more and more, right? Like, do you go to college? If you go to college, which college did you go to? What did you major in? How much money do you make? Like it just, as you get older, it becomes uh, just a smaller and smaller pool of people and I think what's great about a lot of high schools is that it's like, it's just a bunch of different economic classes, different races, yeah. different, like you, you just get all those different things in one very tiny geographical area. Yeah. And so it allows you, like, I, I was trying to tell a story about what happens if like the least likely person ends up changing your life. Yeah. Right. And like these three, like Ellie, Paul and Aster all belong to very different social strata. Like, they really will never interact. But somehow in the course of this, they end up colliding. And that actually starts the journey for each of them to, you know, become the people they need to be at the end. Um, And it's just a lot easier to do that in high school than it would be in, like, because in your 20s, it's kind of like, oh, you don't like this? Then go be with those people. You know, like, it's very, like, you can just be like, well, screw it. I'm just going to create my own. And that's that. And high school is a little, little bit more, you're sort of forced to interact with a cross-section of humanity. I really liked the use of this uh, Cyrano device in the movie because any other time I've seen it done, it never makes sense to me. And this is like the first time where I've seen it done where I'm like, yes, this is a scenario where you wouldn't want your, like, identity known and be like doing this for someone else like 
the movie The Truth About Cats and Dogs was supposed to be that, and it made zero sense because Janine Garofalo was clearly a babe, and it made no sense for her to be hiding behind Uma Thurman. Or even Cyrano de Bergerac, it's like women go for gross-looking men all the time. Like, you don't need to hide behind someone else. But this is like, you know, one, she doesn't even realize at first that she's in love with Aster, you know, and... Too like she is like coming to terms like very quietly with her sexuality and all that stuff. So it works really well in the movie, and it was nice and refreshing to see that device used in a way that I'm like, ah, yeah, that makes sense here. <laughs> yeah, that's so smart that you see that, and and that in a way gets to something I was saying earlier, which is that you know. It's funny. People sometimes be like, oh, is everything gay these days? Or they're like, oh, people are like, as if it's something we just add in. Yeah. And my whole thing is like, look, well, A, I'm, you know, like I'm a lesbian and I know that world and that's what I'm going to write from. That all said, I would argue that my choices for my character strengthen the story. And that's exactly an example of like, it wasn't just like, well, I'll just make her gay because why not? Yeah. It's like, look, this strengthens. Well, to be honest, the story came after I had, like, I already knew I wanted to write about this character being gay. And then I started thinking about the Sereno device because I was like, oh, that would be kind of interesting. Because honestly, it's a little bit of wish fulfillment because I had a crush on the same girl for three years in high school. And the idea that I could have, like, wooed this person in a safe way yeah. is so delicious. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so that 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 sort of is how, how it... Uh, uh, came about. Another thing I noticed is that in this movie and, and in Saving Face is that the the queer romance is not really the big relationship that gets the focus, right? Like in Saving Face, it's the relationship between her and her mom. Like that's the more important one. And in this, you have, I think it's her, it's Ellie and Paul, and then Ellie and her dad, and then maybe Ellie and, and Aster, even though... I don't know. Maybe that's not the way you see it, but that's kind of the way that that I saw. Even though like Aster was very important to her, but like that relationship with her and Paul is again, I'll keep using this word refreshing uh, thing to see because I was asking Melody before. I'm like, can you think of any other movie that like represents like a platonic friendship between a a woman and a guy? And even though like Paul doesn't know it at first that that she's queer those relationships that we have with guys it's like guys when they're not trying to get with somebody sexually can be like more vulnerable and more trusting and open up to women in ways that they might not open up to their guy friends yeah that's exactly uh uh right and I think what's interesting in our society because we are so heterosexist right but especially at that age when you're just trying to figure out your sexuality I think because of the, the 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 setup at first, he's not thinking about Ellie in any romantic way, and probably wouldn't anyway because they're not they don't have that kind of a dynamic. But what is interesting to me that as Paul starts to really get to know her and really like her, I do think this thing also happens where guys at that age can be like, I don't, I guess this must be romantic that like, you know, yeah. like, I don't even think it's like, like, oh, I love you. I'm in love with you. It's more like, 
well, I don't, I don't know what this is there for. It's got to be romantic because you're a, I'm yeah. a boy and you're a girl. Yeah. Right. It's intimate. Yeah. It's like therefore, and it's fascinating, and it has so much to do with the way. Oh, I, I think I think it has so much to do with the way that society treats gender, the way society allows, like, you know, boys are basically only allowed anger as an emotion, right? right? Like any other emotion is considered like, you know, effeminate or sissy or like if they, you know, and so I feel like, you know, we're getting a little better, but it's still an issue. Um, And so I wanted a sort of way to talk about that. And one of the ways in my own life is, you know, like I came out my senior year of college and I've had some really like strong relationships with straight men, but particularly when I first came out, it's like, that's such an interesting relationship to talk about something like this. Cause like what happens if you meet someone and it's like, you've met your soulmate, except there's no interest in having sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably when I was like, I must be super gay because if there's anything in me that's attracted to men, I would marry this guy. Like he you know? Yeah. But then what is that relationship? It's still intimate. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it's even romantic in a weird way, you know, like it's yeah. not sexual. And I, I wanted to figure out a way to talk about that. And I think some of that is like what comes out amongst these characters. Um, and I, I agree with you that ultimately, I don't know that I would say the Aster relationship is less important uh, than the dad or, or Paul on one level. But I agree with you that, you know, you think it's about getting the girl and what is less important is whether or not you get the girl. Yeah. Like it turns out. Yeah. Um, and similarly, it, in Saving Face, you think it's about, oh, will she end up together with Vivian? Yeah. But then you realize really what the movie's about is, is she ever going to be able to, you know, are she and her mom going to be able to find each other? Are these two women going to be able to find each other? And for me, I think my favorite sort of romantic comedies are ones that are not straight down the middle, mm-hmm. are ones that end up having this other piece. Like Saving Face is really about, can you get the girl but also have your family? You know, and I feel like I never got to see that, which is why I wanted to make a movie where she manages in what I think is a believable way to have both. And similarly with the half of it, it's like you you sense in Ellie that like, like it's funny, there's like a whole debate on Twitter right now. Like, is she lesbian? Is she queer? Is she lesbian? Is she queer? <laughs> and my whole thing is like, look, I can tell you that like, I would say I'm lesbian and I've said I'm queer. I wouldn't put that, like literally Ellie's 17 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't feel like she yeah. needs to declare and register immediately. I think she, right. I think all we can say is she clearly can like girls. Who knows? Like, if you were to ask me, my guess is she's going to get a girlfriend down the line. Sure. Right? Like if you were to ask yeah. me. But I don't, like, my characters are bigger than me. They get to be, like, what what they're, you know, and I think that allows people to relate to them. Yeah, I, I think that ends up being about sort of learning about yourself through this incredible friendship she ends up having with the least likely guy. But also I think that into the, the connection she has with Aster also allows her to realize she wants something more for herself in her life than she had thought. Yeah. Like she wants to feel that kind of connection with other people. Yeah. You know, like not, which she's not going to get in this town except with Aster. Yeah. I love Paul. I love the character Paul so much and I didn't expect to starting out because the log line is like, you know, um, girl helps jock write letters to a girl 
he likes, you know? Um, and I've never seen jock representation <laughs> quite like the, that I saw in Paul. I was just assuming I wouldn't like him. I didn't, exper I didn't expect to see all the depth in him. And at one point, even towards the end, I turned to my girlfriend and was like, is it bad that I wish that they just kiss right now? And then she was, as a lesbian, very mad that I said that. But it wasn't <laughs> anything like... I wasn't speaking on any sex. It was just that romance in their friendship, like that level of intimacy they got to really had an effect on me as the viewer. I just, I don't know. I, I didn't think I'd love him so much. <laughs> I love that you said that. One thing is I'm very specific in my casting and I was very adamant about not casting any name actors because I really want people to believe these characters exist. And mm -hmm. I think... Specifically with Paul, like I read like every somewhat known teen actor you could imagine. And it was shockingly hard to find what I was looking for until I found Daniel. I mean, it's funny because no one, everyone else was like, no, you should go with, you know, this known person or that. And I was like, no. Like when I saw Daniel, like I, you know, I, I read him a couple of times and Daniel's like 6'5". Yeah. And I was like, look, yes. the so thing funny. about him is, I, A, I want a different, like, it's just funny to me if it's like, <laughs> you know, you see this gigantic guy and it's like, you know, this, like, it's just, there's something so funny about the odd fellow thing. Totally. But the other thing is Daniel is like, he has so much soul, like yeah. the, the actual actor. And I needed someone who just wasn't just a pretty boy. Like, I needed someone where the first time you see him, you're a little bit like, who's this guy? You know, it's like, like, oh, this is the guy, whatever. But you also kind of understand, like, yeah, no wonder this guy needs some help getting this girl, right? Yeah. Like, you see some super hot, cute, like, you'll see this in teen movies where you're like, that person doesn't need help. Like, why would that person need help? Yeah. But, like, right. with Daniel, like, the way he plays Paul, like, the whole point of Paul is he's terrible with words, but he's the most emotionally intelligent character in the entire movie. And that yeah. emotional intelligence trickles out slowly so that the hope is that at a certain point, you kind of get won over by him. And like, you almost don't know that it's happening until suddenly you're like, I love this guy. Yeah. And I feel like that is Ellie's trajectory with him, right? Like I wanted the way us falling in love with him to mirror her relationship with him so that then it feels uh, like there's a... There's just a, a some sort of real resonance with that that I was hoping we, we would feel then um, with the movie. Oh, felt it. He, oh, good. he won me over with the taco sausage. I was like, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I will tell you that the day I came up with that idea, I literally like left my office, went into the kitchen, was like, I don't know what's going to happen at this script, but taco sausage is a big winner. Like, yeah. I'm just, I'm super convinced that's going to be Weirdly craving a thing. it. <laughs> my, my wife turned to me and was like, can we have taco sausages? I'm like, oh, I think we do have taco shells and sausages. So yeah, I guess we could make that. <laughs> I know. I've actually talked to a couple chef friends of mine to like come up with different recipes for it. And it's one of the things I kind of want to do is like when people see this film, be like, you know, like, I just think it'd be funny if we started, like, everyone just been like, here's my recipe for taco sausage. And like, maybe people could vote and decide what they like best. But I honestly think that somebody's gonna, I mean, I've even thought about like, oh, maybe I'll come up with my version. But I, I want it to be open for, you know, I want it to be open for everybody because I, I it, it is, I do think it's a great idea. <laughs> So many are going to be right. made. This is my, my marketing <laughs> brain is like, if this wasn't crazy coronavirus time, you would have like a food truck in New York City 
That's like the half of it. Yep. Selling sausage tacos and everybody would be yep. Instagramming about it. And so I think. <laughs> oh, li- we had plans. Yeah. We're going to have Taco Sausage Tuesday. Yes. We have also like all. <laughs> Let's still well, make it happen. Are- Let's make it happen online. Listeners, watch the movie when it comes out and then make your make your taco sausage and post it on Twitter and on Instagram. Let's all do this. Love it. Yeah, I, I want to see. We're still going to try and do an online version, online version of that. We're trying to work on that. So the fact that you'd promote it, yes. is fantastic. Yes, yeah. I the w- other thing I think will be a thing is drinkers of Catan. I'm like, I, I play oh. settlers, and again, when I came up with that, I'm like, is this? A-? And I googled like, no one has come up with this, so I need to come up with rules for that. Yes. But I think drinkers of Catan would be a hilarious thing to play. <laughs> yes. Was there anything? unexpected in making this movie from, I guess, when you got the the go-ahead to, to get it made and, like, the final product. As a director, you make a lot of choices. And you never totally know how it's going to play out. But you also don't want to know because then that precludes the chance for magic, right? Like, I'm very specific about my casting, but you don't know for sure how it's going to work because so much of it, it's like... It's like you're setting your actors up on dates, right? Like you could be like, I love these people, but they may or may not like each other, right? And one thing I really love is how much chemistry I feel like the actors have, and that's a credit to them. I mean, we did do chemistry reads, so I saw it. Like I was like, ah, I see chemistry here, you know? Like a, so, so you can certainly do some of that, but then... So I'd written this script, and there are these ping pong scenes in it, right? And... Actually, believe it or not, those scenes are actually very hard to shoot because literally there's like, like you, you either have to cheat it and not show the paddle because like literally your sound guy is going to kill you. Yes. Right. So then, but then if you try and record it without people actually playing ping pong, it's a very hard thing for your actors to do well. Yeah. Uh, So then you have to have them playing ping pong. Right. But then how do you, like, I literally have a a couple of those scenes. They're talking for a long time and the ball's like going. It's not like, you know, like in the beginning it's bad. And then thank God, the hilarious thing that I discovered um, is that Daniel used to teach ping pong. (laughs) Which I was like, yeah, like that's like such a great stroke of luck. Yeah. Because like of all the things that you had to do so that like he was actually really good at playing in a way and like because like Leah meanwhile is like hitting the ball everywhere you right. know but then he would just quietly like so like I was aware of it like it, and it, it's seamless so you're just listening to them talk you're not watching them play ping pong yeah but that actually is a lot to Daniel's credit his ability to take like these wild balls and like just quietly like put it right back <laughs> like very simply in front of her um and uh so that's like a small thing another thing is This is actually true in Saving Face, too. So what's funny is people sometimes ask me, like, how much of your characters are you, right? And I will say that I've never had a friend who's known me before they watch the movie not watch a movie and not be like, oh, your actor's just doing you, you know? So, like, (laughs) but I don't necessarily think, like, I'm like, but there are all these things are not true about us. But in terms of the way I'm, like, groomed or the way that my body language works... And one of the things that I started laughing about, because it happened again, Leah is like infinitely cooler than I am or could ever hope to be, right? Like she literally is like, 
she is that kid who, like, at 15, she would tell me stories. Like, at 15, she was going out to, like, parties and asking out celebrities. Like, she's <laughs> totally, like, that kid. And for her to be, like, you know, we end up having to talk a lot and for her to peel away those layers to get to the character that is Ellie, but also in grooming her. Like, she's a very, very, very attractive uh, woman. Yeah. But I probably did everything you possibly could to nerd her out, right? <laughs> and similarly with Michelle Kruzik, Michelle is nothing like Will in real life. Like she's she's like a dance, like she had like a dancer's way of moving. Um, but then she was such a, again, such, both of them such a good actor that I didn't realize she was doing this. She was basically following me around, taking notes, and then doing me, like the body <laughs> language. That's and so I, at some point, I'm like, is my role in life to take these extremely attractive Asian American women and make them total nerds? Is that like, <laughs> like you know, and like really? Um, but yeah, that the thing I was surprised by is that, like, again, you know, you hope because you pick, you want to pick smart actors, and again, with both of them, I chose people that I knew were really smart, and that I, I just felt like a chemistry with them in terms of the way you communicated. And I'm looking for something where, like, the camera finds these people very watchable, you know? And after that, it's just about building the character with them. Like, really, like, talking and having conversations so that they start to understand who this is that they're inhabiting. Mm -hmm. And then it was amazing to me how well they inhabited those characters, like, how real they made them. But I feel very, very fortunate that I got to work with the people I did and, and that, you know, to, just to see their work. So what's next for you? Do you hate that I, question? Um, Do you hate me for asking No, that? no, no, I don't hate the question. I mean, I don't talk about the stuff I'm working on, but I will say I, I feel incredibly lucky that I've now managed to somehow make two movies, both very much on my own terms. Like I've done work for hire and really enjoyed it before, so I'm not opposed to doing that. And I think it's always good to like, I think it's good to work your skill set, mm -hmm. right? But I, I think my hope... I mean, who knows, but if I could have my druthers, I hope that before I die, I've made like five movies I've written and directed that are very much on my own terms. Or like I have a couple TV show ideas, but also maybe none of those things will happen and that's okay. You know, like I know that I'm just going to keep doing the thing I do. Like if I get lucky and somehow another thing hits, then great. But if not, I, I, maybe because I'm just older now and maybe because I live in San Francisco, like I made the choice to have a very, like to have a life that's outside the industry. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, what's next for me is like as soon as what was going to be next before the coronavirus stuff hit is like I'm working and I'm writing some stuff, but I also wanted to just like, A, I wanted to go on a big road trip by myself and go off and realist myself. Um, I want to like spend time with like some friends I haven't gotten to see over the last year because yeah. I was making this film. I just want to like reconnect with my life because those are the people that I think are the unsung heroes in the stuff I make. Like they're the reason I'm able to make, you know, the kind of things I do. Um, and I want to be able to hang on to that. Well, that's a great answer. Yeah. I'm glad that there's room in the industry for people who don't want to like live or die by the industry, you know, that you don't have to be like living in LA, taking, taking every meeting and uh, yeah. kissing up to people and trying to figure out like what people want and that you're just such a great example for unique voices who want to stay like true to themselves and true to their stories. And that's just a really cool thing. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, 
I think I think that is true. You know, I I think that what you want to do is not worry about what other people are going to want because um, you won't know anyway. So yeah. you might as well just write the thing that you care about. So the half of it comes out May 1st on Netflix. Where can people follow you on social media now that you're you're more active? <laughs> so on Twitter, it's that Alice Wu, T-H-A-T-A-L-I-C-E-W-U. And on Instagram, it's Subway Alice. Love it. And then what's the best way for people to watch Saving Face if they're curious? It's on both Amazon. Sometimes it goes on Prime, which means it becomes free for a while. But otherwise, I think you can rent it for like a couple bucks on Amazon. You can rent it on iTunes, on Google Play. There's probably some other places. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, I guess it's just been sitting there for a while. And now people are rediscovering it. That's great. Well, yeah, big time. Gotta love that passive income. Gotta get that. It's the dream. <laughs> Alice, thank you so much for taking the time to dike out with us today. This is a lot of fun. Oh, my gosh. You are such an inspiration. I I can't wait to watch it again. Oh, thank you. No, thank you for such smart questions. I really appreciate how much thought you put into them, and I feel really, uh, yeah, I feel lucky to get to have been here. Man, Alice is so cool. I needed to hear her story and we'll probably like play it back many times over because it's so good to hear of like a non-traditional Hollywood person who's like having success and still being true to themselves and who they are and making the stuff they want to make and having the courage to to do that. Doing things on her terms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, moving at her own pace. I loved hearing about that so much. I loved hearing about that. Honestly, though, uh, shocked she's not a Capricorn. I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I believe it. It's close. Yeah. Uh, she really, I think because it resonated with both of us so much, we're like, mm-hmm, yes, yes, be very practical for many years and then follow your dreams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, was she actually validating my laziness? <laughs> <laughs> Is that why I loved it? No. <laughs> Truly inspiring and so much hard work, clearly paying off. And I, yeah, it's a really good movie and it'll come out like a few days after this drops. Yes. Yeah, so make sure you check that out on Netflix, won't you? And uh, let's get to our listener question. But before we do that, a quick update on last week's question, because I, I love a, an update. Uh, I am very curious. So let's uh, gossip about our listener question. Just to remind everybody, this was a listener who was asking about, is it okay to like secretly sleep with your ex-girlfriend's friend? And uh, the question had actually been sent months before. We're backlogged, uh, as you know. By the way, send your questions to dykingout at gmail.com. Or if you need an answer right away, go to wizio.com slash dykingout. Wizio, W-I-S-I-O dot com slash dykingout. We've done two of those so far and I love them. I love giving advice. And anyway, that listener emailed us an update and said that surprise, surprise, she caught feelings for the friend that she was sleeping with. They are now a couple and they have moved in together because of the pandemic and the quarantine, like (laughs) many of you Susans have. And, uh, they, you know, once they caught feelings and decided to date, they told the ex uh, slash friend about it. And that ex has talked to neither of them since. So 
Sometimes that happens, and it sounds like they're very happy, though, and I think they did the right thing, and this listener is doing great and now has a girlfriend that she's living with, and good for her. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Love a happy ending. Love it. On to this week's listener question. I'm 28, and I've only been in one long-term relationship, which lasted four years. It was great while it lasted, but it also made me realize I don't want to be in a relationship. I'm an incredibly toxic person when it comes to good communication skills, transparency, sensitivity, and other Wait, things. Wait, is, is this uh, submitted by a daytime talk show host who should not be named? Oh, wait, no, no. Oh, my they God. They say they're 28. They say they're 28. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. Oh, my God. You're obsessed. Okay. Um... It may sound basic and selfish of me, but I don't like the complexity of being on that level with someone. I'm still obviously very obsessed with women and would like that intimate contact, but no one seems to be interested in hooking up anymore. Is it my age group? Is it that more people are just confident in who they are and what they want now? I kind of feel like friends with benefits isn't even a thing anymore. Is it now what's considered an open relationship? All of my friends are straight and I'm settled in my career, so I'm starting to feel a bit old and out of the loop. I know plenty of guys who love the idea of hookups, dot, dot, dot. Am I doomed as a lesbian? Will the emotions forever overrule? Okay. Listen, that Shane. Dot, dot, dot didn't mean, does that mean she's going to men? No, no. <laughs> no. I don't think so. <laughs> the first time I read it, I was like, what? Yeah, this is a, this is a Shane, a Shane Susan. <laughs> That's the advice. Yeah, you're a Shane, you're Shane, and you're gonna find a pop star who's gonna who's gonna love you for you. Exactly. Just watch the L word if you haven't already. Look at Shane's trajectory. Learn from her mistakes. <laughs> Worst advice ever. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of real down to earth life lessons to learn from the L word. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I love that. This person seems very self-aware and seems to know what they want, too. I'm an incredibly toxic person when it comes to good communication skills. That seems like good communication. Yeah, (laughs) you're doing great with that. Like, hey, heads up. I'm not good at this. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. It's great that you're self-aware of this. Uh, It could be good to learn the reasons why this stuff makes you uh, uncomfortable or why you feel you're toxic around this. I would recommend therapy because often there are underlying issues, but I know not everybody can, uh, can afford therapy. It's a very expensive thing for most people. So that aside, I would assume, and I don't know because I'm not on the the apps and never was that, you know, that a lot of, yeah, you think you're old. Yeah. Right. (laughs) A lot of, (laughs) Uh, back when I was using dial-up internet to get up in the forums, uh, it yeah. seemed like people were looking for relationships and that uh, queer women traditionally aren't as much into to hookup culture, especially compared to like gay men. But all of that is changing right now. And maybe it depends on like where you live uh, in New York. Maybe, maybe move to New York. Um it's hard for us as humans and as uh, to to not catch feelings. There's a science to it, you know. Intimacy does lead to an emotional connection for most people, and 
I think being honest and upfront uh, is good, but then a lot of times you can be honest and upfront and a lot of people on the other end will be like, sure, that's great. And they'll think that they can change you and they can't. And then that will lead to more headaches for you because you'll be like, oh, I said that I just wanted to like screw around and now you're catching feelings for me. So I think that it's really going to just take some sleuthing and maybe some patience on your part to find people that are in the same place as you and are looking for like legit looking for casual things without strings attached. They exist. I know some people who are like that. But then I also know people who were like that for a while who who changed people who thought that they would never want to settle down. And it was just a matter of of meeting the right person. So uh, I don't know. I think you just have to keep being honest with, with women. It's great that that you're self-aware about being toxic. Uh, I would recommend trying to be less toxic if, if possible. <laughs> uh, OK, let's address your questions and, and Melody, please jump in. Uh, I can't weigh in because I'm an incredibly toxic person. <laughs> <laughs> All the better. All the better. <laughs> like, it, is it my age group? I, yeah, that depends on where you live. You know, when I was 28, I was already in my first marriage. So oh my God, I, really? I was looking to settle down. Yeah. Like as soon as I was in my mid 20s, I was like all about, you know, relationships and i mean i've always been about hardcore relationships i don't know why i said oh my god all my straight friends got married around then if not before <laughs> right right it wasn't until i moved to, to new york city where people were just like oh my god you're married you're so young uh, yeah that's probably and okay um is it that more people are just confident in who they are and what they want right now yeah i think that's definitely a reason for it i think a lot of people are you know more open and able to communicate what they want because of apps, they probably feel like there are more choices and right. that they don't need to settle for things that they don't want. So that's, that's a good also, thing. Also, yeah, maybe if you're on OkCupid trying to find someone, you know, of course you're going to find people who are very upfront with what they want and that is relationships. Like maybe it's a matter of <laughs> finding the right platform. Yeah. The right app. Oh, and then your last question, listener, you are not doomed as a lesbian. You'll be okay. A lot of stuff changes in your life, I think, when you hit your 30s. And you might feel like maybe everybody else knows what they want right now. And maybe it's that you haven't figured out what you want yet. And you'll figure it out along the way. But you're you're not doomed. And, you know, even guys who say they love the idea of hookups, like, they also like to settle down and have, I don't know. Look at Carolyn trying to talk about guys. No, delete it. <laughs> Edit it out. Edit it out. Guys are trash. No, keep it guys are Guys are trash. Keep Carolyn being like, and even guys um, exist. Guys exist. They can be fine. You know, I mentioned we have one healthy embryo and it's a boy. So if that, if that one takes, uh, we have to... Just raise him to destroy the patriarchy from within. Uh, really trying to soften up on on men here. <laughs> men and talk show hosts. Just trying to soften yeah. up on them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. It's a, it's a new Carolyn. Watch out, world. <laughs> oh, God. Thank you guys for listening. Honestly, I appreciate every last one of you. And I'm very serious about um, that. Melody, how much should I tell you what? that... 
I love our listeners. Carolyn is obsessed with our listeners, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> I message her sometimes because we both have the social media connected to our phones and I'm just, I have to turn the notifications off because Carolyn's really having back and forth <laughs> with a lot of listeners in record response times. Like she is there for you. And I am sometimes like, is this not emotionally draining for you? <laughs> like you really care. Carolyn really cares. I do. And likes to follow up on what's going on in your life. Like loves giving advice, obviously. Yeah. Um, very, very invested. Carolyn cares. Melody is Melody's feeling out the space. <laughs> Melody's a very private person, but Melody's leaning in to this community. I don't know. It is very cool. I love it, too. I'm just, you know, new to yeah. it. And I got freaked out by the attention at first, I think. Yeah, but. you're you're still adjusting. I, I love it. I love the stuff that you guys share with us. And, you know, obviously, like, I, I interact when I can. And sometimes I I can't always respond. And please don't take it personally if, if I don't. Sometimes it's just like there's a lot going on. But even, you know, the listener who emailed today to call me out, I loved it. I read it. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I love you. Yes. You're right. <laughs> you are right. You are right. Uh, thank you. You know, everybody who writes in, I really appreciate it. People send like the sweetest uh, messages to my wife that just like make her day. You guys are so awesome. And I feel just so uh, incredibly lucky that you tune into this and I never take it granted for a second. Uh, I love you all. <laughs> oh God. Uh, <laughs> that got sappy. All right. Well, now that I gushed, uh, if, if you're not doing it already, why don't you just give me a follow on social media at TGI Carolyn and follow Melody at Melody Kamali. And you can follow us at Diking Out on everything and a couple other followers. If you're just uh, if you're curious for more queer people to follow, you can follow uh, my wife, who does all the art for the podcast at Ceci Bergier. That's C-E-C-I-B-E-R-G-I-E-R. And our editor for the podcast is also a very talented artist and has some really cool art that she's been posting like crazy during this quarantine. Check it out at Lauren Nicole Art on Instagram and give it a follow because it's great to follow and support a queer artist. You can also get extra content from us on Patreon at patreon.com slash checking out. Or if you listen to this on Himalaya, you can become a premium member and get the same extra content that way that we tend to do a little bit more interacting on Patreon. That's because that's where most of you hang out. Thank you for diking out with us this week, everybody. We hope you're all healthy and sane and keeping it real. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see you next week in an Ellen Free Zone. Until then. You weren't supposed to say your name. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> now, since you brought it up, here's another 20 minutes. <laughs> be kind to one another. <laughs> yeah, be kind to one another. Hey, how about we take that back? Let's reclaim it. We'll reclaim it like we've reclaimed the word dyke. Be kind to one yeah. another. Yeah, just kind out. Bye. 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 
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.